orange groves and fresh air and all of that. So people came here hoping to find all those things. And a lot of them did, but they lost their communities. They lost their churches. And so they're drifting. Everyone is looking for salvation. And so I think that that makes them more prey to these fantastical ideas. Los Angeles is named after heavenly beings, but here at the continent's edge, it's always been the demons that inflame our imaginations and apocalypse that haunts our dreams. As I write this, the world grapples with a deadly pandemic that has killed hundreds of thousands and upended civilization. Los Angeles is only one more data point in this tragedy, but residing in an incubator of the future, Angelinos have long lived with the tropes of dystopian fiction. In addition to plagues, reality for us also means giant forest fires that poison our air and block the sun, powerful earthquakes, extreme droughts, rising seas, Orwellian surveillance, exploding tent cities of the dispossessed, and Hollywood's dream factory, where the blight of celebrity worship began. Indeed, one can argue that LA is already so weird, surreal, irrational, and mythic that any fiction emerging from this place should be considered speculative. From the moment our ancestors founded El Pueblo de Nuestra Señora La Reina de Los Ángeles del Rio Porcincula, the full name of LA, we began to conjure up a fictional utopian past that suited us better than the blood and genocide-soaked reality of our Western frontier. So I'm back with Denise Hamilton. Last week, we talked about They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And this week, we're going to talk about her book, an anthology she edited called Speculative Los Angeles. I'll just refresh your bio, which is Denise Hamilton is an incredibly prolific author who's won a bunch of awards. And you can listen to last week's episode if you want to hear which ones. But she's pretty awesome. She's from Los Angeles. The book that we're talking about today, the anthology that you were the editor and creative force behind. It's called Speculative Los Angeles. I'm currently holding up a copy of it, even though this is a podcast and nobody can see me. <laughs> it's a beautiful book. Tell us a little bit how this project came about. What inspired you to do this? This goes back to what we were talking about last week about noir. There's a great independent publisher in Brooklyn called Akashic Books, and they have a series of city noir anthologies. They had tapped me to edit the Los Angeles Noir Anthology. They have Brooklyn Noir, Miami Noir. They've branched out all over the world. They've got Tokyo Noir, Paris Noir. So anyway, some years ago, I edited two volumes of Los Angeles Noir for this publisher as a little side gig. What I did was I got about 15 writers to write brand new short stories, noir crime short stories, each set in a different neighborhood of Los Angeles. So the only caveat was there had to be a dead body. And so the idea was to do like this noir travel log through the different neighborhoods. And so you get a feel, the local color, the ethnic diversity of each neighborhood. And then we did the classics, L.A. Noir 2, the classics. And we got the rights to reprint stories by Raymond Chandler and James M. Kane and Walter Mosley and James Elroy, lots of people. So then I thought, well, I'm really into speculative fiction and science fiction. And LA is just such a great place for that, you know, Blade Runner and Philip K. Dick and 
Harlan Ellison. So I proposed to doing speculative Los Angeles, which would be like 14 brand new short stories that were not set in the real world. Again, each one would be set in a different neighborhood of Los Angeles. So the publishers liked the idea. And I tapped the different writers and it came out earlier this year. So there are stories that are time travel, alternate L.A., alternate history, ghost stories, retellings of urban myths, giant robots, anything you can imagine. Summoning up demons at JPL. And some of it uses L.A. famous characters like Jack Parsons, who was one of the founders of JPL. He was involved with Caltech. He was a rocket scientist and also the founder of Parsons Engineering. So he was a rocket scientist. He was also an occultist. He took a huge amount of drugs. He loved to summon up demons, have sex orgies with all his friends and girlfriends and do a bunch of drugs. He was just like this crazy, brilliant rocket scientist. He was also friends with L. Ron Hubbard who started Scientology and was a science fiction writer before he started Scientology. So Jack Parsons as a fictional character pops up in several of the novels. We got people like Charles Yu, who wrote Interior Chinatown, which won the National Book Award. We got horror writers, screenwriters, all different people. The collection has done really well and gotten wonderful reviews. So that's my latest project. It's really great. It's really fun to recognize some of these places and to at least know where they are. The way you've ordered them, they're so different. It's just such a fun ride because, you know, you just sort of get into a world and you're like, oh man, that's great. And then it's just a completely new world that's equally compelling, but totally different. I want someone to take this and just make 15 episodes of television. I'm all for that. <laughs> the authors are too. And I'm really thrilled that we have a bunch of like established writers who contributed to the collection. And then we have more newish writers like S. Huey Liu, whose name I'm totally massacring. But their story is set in the San Gabriel Valley on this giant landfill. It's set in a future where the president has reinstated the Chinese Exclusion Act which means that anyone who's of Chinese descent and is not a citizen is deported back to China. And they're not allowed to go to college. They're not allowed to get good jobs. So this young woman works at this landfill. And at night, she is a pilot for these giant mecha monsters that battle in this landfill. And it's such a cinematic story. There's two different love stories involved, but it's these Guys who basically like soup up and weld these gigantic robots and paint them different colors and give them names. And then the driver is piloting them. And it's two of these giant mecha monsters kind of like battling it out for supremacy. And sometimes people get injured and there's different teams. It's kind of like Formula One, but for giant mecha monsters. And so the story uses a lot of interesting ideas from like Japanese anime and Godzilla and giant monsters, but it's a love story and it takes place in this future where Chinese people are discriminated against. And it's set out in La Puente, which is a faraway suburb of Los Angeles County, somewhere remote in Queens, I guess. It's not exactly like the sexy place where you think all the happening stuff is going on. And yet this author is able to infuse this story with such energy and crackling freshness. And it's a great sci-fi story. So I'm really happy that not all the stories take place in Hollywood and the beach and the typical things you associate with LA. 
So that story that we were just talking about is called Where There Are Cities, These Dissolve Too. That was certainly among my favorites. The way that the author got you to care about these characters is so masterful. And all these stories are like that. They all have a little something that's just quite amazing. I think that the best speculative fiction does have a lot of humanity in it. It's just set in a non-realistic place, whether it's the future or an ultimate past or, or whatever. You have to care about the characters. So we touched on this a little bit, but why do you think L.A. is such a great place for sci-fi? Octavia Butler, you mentioned Blade Runner, Philip K. Dick, Neil Stephenson, Snow Crash. Some of the greatest sci-fi in history either takes place in L.A. or is written by people in L.A. or both. Why do you think it's such a great place for that? There's just tons of sci-fi movies, future disaster movies that are set in L.A., it's because I think the place is so surreal to begin with. You're never sure whether you're dealing with reality or something imaginary. There's so many ghosts here. So much has happened here. So much violence, so much craziness, so many layers of history. And of course, every city has so many layers of history. But I think that with Hollywood casting such a dark shadow over everything and such a looming shadow, it makes it okay to take that additional step into fantasy and to imagine an alternate LA. Man in the High Castle is set in San Francisco, but the idea is that the Japanese won World War II, the Japanese and the, the Nazis. And I think because LA and all of California is on the coast, it's the last gasp of America. You look out and it's all ocean and beyond it is Asia. It's a natural border. And all you have to do is just step across that border. It's got everything. And it's so fantastical to think that you can be on the beach in the morning and you can be skiing in the snow in the afternoon somewhere in the San Gabriel Mountains. And L.A. has always drawn fabulists and creatives and prophets and con men and charlatans. It's just a place where people come from other places. And so they're kind of unmoored and they're floating and they're looking for salvation, for prosperity, for health. In the 1800s, people came to Southern California for health reasons, to get rid of tuberculosis or whatever the doctors would say, go to California and you could get on the railroad at one point for a dollar. You could come from New York or the Midwest, you could come for a dollar. So orange groves and fresh air and all of that. So People came here hoping to find all those things, and a lot of them did, but they lost their communities, they lost their churches where they used to go, they lost their family, and so they're drifting. Everyone is looking for salvation, and so I think that that makes them more prey to these fantastical ideas, and I think that's why, like Charlie Manson in the 60s, part of it was the times hippies and drugs and free love and all of this stuff. But part of it was, you know, everyone in LA is where he really hit his evil stride. And I don't think that was an accident. I think that there were just a lot of unmoored young people here that he was able to tap into. And I don't know that he would have flourished the way he did in Kansas City. I think he would have been imprisoned or driven out of town. But here in L.A., you can hide in the nooks and crannies and canyons and deserted ranches and the desert, and you can create your own reality. Yeah, I live where the Manson Caves are, at Rocky Peak, right on the Spawn Ranch. And 
it would be very easy to believe that there was a reality beyond what you can perceive just standing around here because it's such a unique geographical area and it's also so close to Los Angeles, but especially in the 60s, unless someone took you here, you never would have found it. It's just the kind of place that if we were walking along and we looked at it, we would say, let's go check that out. So I'm sure that that's what everyone who saw it did. It's otherworldly. And there are so many places in LA that are like that, where you can be up in the mountains in the middle of the snow, or you can be by the ocean. And the Pacific Ocean is compared to the Atlantic, it's just different than anything anyone's ever seen who comes from other parts of the United States. So we ask all the guests to recommend two books to our audience that they should check out. Day of the Locust is one. And then since we're talking about Manson and such things, I would recommend the novel, I Love You, But I've Chosen Darkness by Claire Vey Watkins. Her father was a guy named Watkins who was part of the Manson crew. He was like one of the key people in the Manson family. And he was the one who eventually went to the police out in Death Valley when he heard what had happened with the LaBianca and Sharon Tate murders. So he turned state's evidence. So that was her father. And she grew up out in the desert and she became a writer. She had so much to write about and to think about. And there's a lot of dysfunction in the family, but it's just a riveting novel and it's autobiographical. And she writes so beautifully and lyrically about the desert and the landscapes. So if you're at all into the desert, she also wrote Gold Fame Citrus, which part of it also takes place in the desert with a Charlie Manson-like character. And the writing, again, is just gorgeous. And it kind of veers it a little bit into speculative fiction. Both the books do. They're not 100% set in the real world. I recommend her. I love that. The title alone makes me want to read that book. So finally, where can the podcast listeners find you? DeniseHamilton.com. That's my website. DeniseHamilton underscore on Twitter. I think that's about it. This conversation with Denise Hamilton was brought to you by the Miami Book Fair. It is the best place in the country to go hear conversations like this about ideas and about books and about all kinds of fun stuff. You can learn more about them at miamibookfair.com. There's also a link to their website in the description and it's pretty awesome. So thanks Miami Book Fair. My guest next week is going to be Wayne Fetterman and we're going to be talking about the runaway smash hit self-help book, Atomic Habits. I will be slightly excoriating certain parts of it with our guest, Wayne Fetterman, who is an awesome actor, comedian, and author. We'll see what Wayne has to say. The Book Society podcast, where we talk about interesting books with interesting people. New episodes every Friday, hosted by me, Lucas Cantor. We have a different guest every time. It is edited and produced by Santiago Ramones, who is an awesome dude with his own podcast called Bit Depth, which I highly recommend. So tune in every Friday or, I mean, really, whenever it's a podcast. You can listen to it whenever you want. Thanks for listening. Bye. So when you Google Denise Hamilton, one of those boxes with info comes up, as it does for notable people, and yours says that you're 121 years old. I've never seen that. Yeah, it says you were born in 1900. Well, I guess it's a good cosmic joke then. Yeah. <laughs>